I am alone in this room, alone in the world, with nothing to engage me but these meaningless squiggles. All day long, I move the squiggles around, even though they invoke in me a great emptiness. I wish that I could become one with the squiggles, and so embrace the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist, you are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 146 of Embrace the Void, where we're pausing from the chaos outside to observe the chaos inside. I am your host, Aaron, um, and this week we have another in our ongoing continuing discussions about consciousness and the Chinese room. Um, I think this is a really uh, great conversation, and I'm uh, glad to pass it along. So hopefully you can enjoy the semantics of it. Here we go. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Daniel Estrada, a lecturer at New Jersey Institute of Technology, where he teaches on engineering ethics, AI, and philosophy of mind. Daniel, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, Void. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I don't have a lot of publications. I, I just really have a loud mouth on Twitter. So it's nice to get some recognition <laughs> from the Void. Um, yes. I, it feel, feels like I've officially made it on Twitter. You have. You officially made it on Philosophy <laughs> Twitter, which is really more of a shame than anything else. It's not really <laughs> anyone who would want to claim to have done so is welcome to do so at this moment. Um, but yes, you are more well known to many people as um, Eripsa on Twitter. Uh, where was where where I came across you as well, and um, where I you, you made some comments that I thought were worth uh, unpacking in an episode. Um, before we get to that, do you want to give a sense of like where you fall in the in the great compass of life, and um, where you fall specifically in the AI ethics and philosophy world? Right. So I'm a pragmatist generally in, in philosophy of mind. I guess I would describe myself as a functionalist and a naturalist. I'm somewhere mm-hmm. in Dennett's camp. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm mostly interested in approaches to the mind that uh, uh, have a sort of dynamical systems approach or uh, co- complex systems approach. Um, so I'm sympathetic with the inactivist paradigm, um, complex embodied, embedded, situated uh, cognitive processes. I, I would describe myself as a computationalist, but I think there's a lot of confusion over what that exactly amounts to and how computational processes are related to embodied cognitive processes. Um, I, I guess that's partly what we're going to talk about today. Um, Mm-hmm. I, I also do work in AI ethics. Uh, I, I have some uh, work on uh, robot rights. Um, and these two conversations are somewhat surprisingly not very uh, well integrated with each other. The AI ethics mm-hmm. literature uh, doesn't really care about the issues in philosophy of mind. Um, and uh, there's not a lot of crosstalk between these two communities. It's hope- one of the things I, I, I would like to work on uh, is developing these connections, um, especially around sort of collective agency and autonomy, which I think have both ethical and sort of mm-hmm. philosophy of mind. Uh, dimensions. So hopefully we get to talk about this stuff too. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I think you and I are probably very much in agreement that philosophy of mind has a really important really important things to say that are have downstream implications in ethics and that a lot of this has to do with emerging artificial intelligences and uh, the expanding of the moral community to potentially include those. Um, I'm curious to hear some about your ethical takeaways, and maybe we can talk about that some after we've worked the Chinese room a little bit, about whether you think that AI should be given rights, um, whether you think that we would have a sufficient test of whether they could actually have the criteria necessary to be um, bearers of rights. Um, but I, I want to work up to that a little bit. So yeah. you mentioned Dennett in there. You said that you're in the Dennett camp. And I want to help people who maybe aren't as familiar with the philosophy of mind stuff understand a little bit more about where you kind of just located yourself. So on your website, you say, um, you quote Dennett as saying, well, we're robots made of robots made of robots. Um, and I'm always a big fan of turtles all the way down as an explanation and philosophy for most everything. Um, but I'm curious why you see this particular version of that as like valuable. Why is it useful to call us a stack of robots? Yeah. Uh, so uh, at one level, Dennett is making a pretty straightforward claim, uh, uh, sort of a classical mechanist view that the universe is a machine and we're part of that machine. Mm -hmm. um, the, the iteration robots made of robots made of robots um, gives that classical mechanist view a sort of new mechanist flavor um, uh, uh, where it's not a reductive view, but it's sort of acknowledging the structures of organization uh, on organization on organization that build uh, mm -hmm. the universal machine. Um, so, uh, so, so that kind of a uh, non-reductive um, mechanist position is, is sort of one, one thing that I like. It's very general. I like it as far as it goes. But then it isn't just calling us machines. He's calling us robots. And uh, on, on my view, ro a robot is a, it's a cultural term. It, it's not a mechanistic description. There's okay. no real scientific definition of what a robot is or e even engineering definition. There's actually a lot of, uh, I think, rather silly uh, work <laughs> in the AI ethics literature trying to define precisely what a robot is for the purposes of policy and regulation. Um, but uh, but th this stuff doesn't have any sort of deep uh, met metaphysical uh, traction. At least that's my view. Um, so if um, I ask you, is my lawnmower a robot? Do you just get mad at me? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't get mad at you right away. But I, I think those <laughs> kinds of questions don't don't go very far. So okay. the, the conversation around what a robot is usually starts uh, acknowledging the, the roots of the words, which have a, a Slavic origin. The, the word sure. robot means worker or slave. So, so robots do work. And uh, importantly, uh, humans, uh, the Slavic word refers to human workers. Um, uh, the idea of work uh, has a kind of mechanist flair in the sense that you can uh, talk about work in physics or thermodynamics, like uh, force over distance. Um, mm -hmm. but, but otherwise, there's not a lot of metaphysical baggage with the word work. So, so I think robots are, are workers. Ro robots are machines that do some task. Um, and mm -hmm. those tasks are defined at a... a I think at a high social level, um, I, I think humans can be workers. You know, I, I have a job or whatever. I mean, that's the kind of worker. Uh, sure. So, uh, so I, I like the robots made of robots partly as an acknowledgement that the world doesn't divide, divide cleanly between the humans and the machines or the humans and the robots. Mm -hmm. um, we're all complex machines and we exist as a confluence of these kinds of organized work. And robots are part of that milieu as well. Yeah, this is interesting to me because I'm at the same time sympathetic to this and also not sympathetic to the group to the, like the like the Dennett kind of 
like a lot of the stuff that you're going to be sympathetic to, I'll just like cards on the table here. I think in, in a totally fine, acceptable way. I think you and I, you know, attend different churches um, in the philosophy of mind. But I, I like get this idea that you know there when we talk about the difference between physics and chemistry and and biology and uh, psychology, you know, what we're talking about are different systems that are intentional towards certain kinds of goals and have certain reliably, you know, predictable behaviors as a result of those uh, goals. And like, you know, w- with caveats for how we use the term goals for things like electrons, right? But um, that, that we are in a sense, you know, like it is that way all the way down while while respecting your anti-reductionist approach that says, you know, that doesn't mean that we can understand the true nature of the universe just by understanding the electrons or something like that. Um, so I'm sympathetic to all of that. And I'm also... I just want to point out, right, Cyril, it seems like, because we're going to talk primarily about the Chinese room here today, is also sympathetic to part of that in the sense that he says in the Chinese room paper, you know, not only do I think machines can can think, I think only machines can think because we are just a sophisticated kinds of machines. So I do feel like there is a general agreement on a lot of this kind of robots all the way down perspective, even amongst people who are more in the Nagel, Chalmers, uh, Cyril kind of side of thinking that there's something being left out of some of these kinds of descriptions. Do you, do you feel like that's that's generally at least fair and understandable? Yeah, yeah, that, that seems fair to me. Um, uh, I, I think there are questions about how far Cyril can go with that uh, to say that we're we're machines, we're a special kind of machines. Um, uh, mm-hmm. How 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 much that distinction actually amounts to but um. sure yeah so let's dive into that because you so the reason that you're here is because you were giving me uh flack on twitter for my very brave take that the chinese room is still a good thought experiment even though everybody makes fun of it all the time um and it was very interesting flack that came from a kind of philosophy of language place that i'm not nearly as well versed in and so like and also from a uh computer science background that i'm not as nearly as well versed in so i was hoping that you could come on the show and and you know make fun of me and correct me um live because i think it'll be better that way um but first i wanted to sort of give people a sense of how you describe the chinese room and i want to just point out right I'm I'm very open to having the Chinese room be stricken from the canon because Cyril was a sex pest, as far as I can tell, and like it pains me that we have to sort of teach this material in that level. So I'm all 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 on board for adopting your kind of perspective here. But um, uh, tell me why. Tell me, so tell me first how you would describe the Chinese room thought experiment if you were presenting it to someone. Yeah. Um, so I just want to echo that that Cyril's not a good guy, um, mm-hmm. and the, the the rumors about him not being a good guy have been in philosophy as long as I've been in philosophy, um, and the actions taken against him have been much more recent. So, uh, uh, I, I, I share your discomfort with with uh, uh, with Cyril, but but I do think uh, Cyril's case uh, as a philosopher is instructive for for new philosophers who want to know what the discipline is like and how. Um, uh, mm-hmm. How, how the tradition develops the way that it does. So, uh, so uh, my, my own uh, major interests are with Turing. I wrote my dissertation on, on Turing uh, and Turing's test. Uh, so, so Cyril is kind of the enemy 
Um, I, I mm-hmm. do think that there are some good arguments against Turing's test, and one of the arguments I really like is uh, Lady Lovelace's objection, which which I, I'd like to talk about more. I think Lovelace's objection um, hmm. ought to be the one that we replace Searle's Chinese room argument with. I think Lovelace's objection, it has the same kind of intuitive force, but it's uh, it's not problematic in all the ways that Searle's uh, arguments are. Um, Okay. okay so, Make sure we talk so, about that some for sure. Yeah. I, I, hopefully, we get to talk about Lovelace because I, I think it's a it's a it's a good argument. But, oh, absolutely. I think it's very important. So that's that's worth bringing up. Uh, so Searle's argument, the way that I understand it, is that he's responding to Turing's test. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to try to give my fair, neutral discussion of, of what he's saying. The sort of introductory lecture that I give, uh, mm-hmm. and it needs it needs to start with the discussion of how uh, Turing's test works. So. Um, uh, Turing's imitation game, this is 1950s, uh, it's a behavioral test for intelligence. Um, Turing is trying to answer the question, can machines think in a way that is tractable with science? Uh, Turing is, uh, uh, publishes this paper in the 1950s. Um, at the time, the dominant uh, psychological paradigm is behaviorism. Uh, mm-hmm. Behaviorists think that you can uh, learn about uh, cognitive processes. I don't know, they wouldn't call them cognitive processes. You can learn about these sort of mental behaviors, uh, not by looking inside the mind. You, you can't look inside the mind. But instead, what you do is you observe behavior. You observe the relationships between stimulus and response. You take very careful track of that. Um, and then you can you can learn you can learn important things from just the sort of behavioral analysis. Mm-hmm. So Turing's test is an attempt to give a behavioral ad, uh, analysis of the question, can machines think? Um, we can't get inside the mind of computers any more than we can get inside the mind of another human. But Turing thinks that if you can get a machine that behaves enough like a human so that we can't tell it apart, if you can get a computer that behaves enough like a human that we can't tell it apart from other humans, mm-hmm. then we should judge that that machine thinks or uh, has passed some important uh, threshold of intelligence. Mm-hmm. And after all, this is how we uh, judge humans. Right? So I can't look inside your mind, but I can ask you questions and I can judge by the sort of responses that you give me how intelligent you are. Um, right. If you were sleepwalking, you'd give me much different answers and that says something about the, your intelligence. Uh, so uh, Turing wants to do the same thing with computers. Uh, ask them questions, see how they respond. If they respond enough like humans who we judge to be intelligent, then we should judge the machine intelligent too. Mm-hmm. So there's lots to say about the Turing's tests and variations of it, but uh, the really important purposes for the Searle discussion is that Turing wants this to be a, a tractable uh, thing that you can sort of test in a lab. You can give quantitative results about how how often the computer fools a human. It's it's an externally observable feature rather than an internal feature is the way that I put it to my students, right? That right, like right. It's, it's something that our, uh, science, natural science can get its grubby hands on. That's right. That's right. So Searle's Chinese room argument is meant to uh, object to Turing's uh, test uh, to to provide a principled argument that uh, Turing's test fails as a test for intelligence. Um, the point of the Chinese room is to show that even if the computer was behaving indistinguishably, that still doesn't settle the question of whether it's thinking, whether it understands what it's doing, um, whether there's any real mentality there. So the Turing test is not sufficient, and this is what Chinese room is supposed to supposed to show. So the way that Searle shows this is with this thought experiment. Um, the thought experiment imagines Searle himself in a room. Um, the room has uh, input and output slots where he takes in notes from the outside and he puts notes back uh, mm-hmm. out of the room. Um, and <clears throat> um, the way that he converts an input note to an output note is with this rule book that's in the room. Um, the rule book, it's written in English so he can follow it. It's not hard to follow. And it has, has these complicated formulas for taking some something on the input and transforming it to something on the output. Mm-hmm. And so because the rule book's written in English, he can follow these rules and he can produce these outputs. Um, but he doesn't know what's going on. So the symbols that are coming in 
and the operations he's performing in the output and the output symbols are all in Chinese. And Searle doesn't understand Chinese. He understands English. He understands French and German a little bit less, but he doesn't understand Chinese at all. Uh, to him, mm -hmm. he says the, the symbols are meaningless squiggles and squoggles. Um, but nevertheless, he can follow the rule book. And so uh, Searle's point is that if you're outside the room, um, you might see yourself putting a question in and then a little while later getting a sensible answer to that question out. And mm -hmm. from the from outside the room, it looks like whoever's in inside the room can speak Chinese, can understand Chinese. But from Searle's perspective, inside the room, he doesn't understand Chinese at all. He's just following these sort of mindless formulas. Um, and at no point is he given any insight into what the conversation is about. So even though it looks uh, indistinguishable from human behavior from the outside, um, from the inside, there's no understanding or mentality going on. So uh, the Chinese room can pass the Turing test, but it's still not intelligent. So this is supposed to be a, a, right. a counterexample to pa Turing test. the Chinese Turing test. Right. So what is your, so you're take, you read Cyril's takeaway as being this undermines the proof that external, like a test of external features of intelligence or understanding are indicative of there actually being understanding inside of the entity. Right. And it's the, the thought experiment works because it's supposed to be intuitively gripping that uh, Cyril mm -hmm. does not understand any Chinese while he's inside the room. I mean, it doesn't matter how many formulas he processes, how fast he does it. Um, that's not going to improve his understanding of Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, and once you accept that intuition, then Searle springs the trap. He says, well, okay, so computers are in exactly the same position as Searle in the room, only processing these formulas. Um, if all the computers are doing is this sort of symbolic manipulation, then they're never, they never have access to any kind of understanding uh, that you, you would expect from someone who understands the language. Yeah. And and let's at least say before before I let you rip into it here, right? I do think that even if we do sort of prove it to be not as valuable as people think it to be, it is still a fairly important thought experiment and one that like individuals who are learning the history of philosophy of mind should be educated on, including being educated on the problems with it that I'm sure you will shortly here present. Yeah, I, uh, I think from, from an instructional standpoint, I, I think this is why Chinese Room is so, so popular, not because people are convinced by it, but because mm -hmm. from an instructional standpoint, it's, it's really useful. You don't need a lot of background to get into it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it it's been taught in philosophy 101 courses for decades uh, because because students are gripped by it. Right. OK, good. So we at least acknowledge that, like, you know, it is hard to sometimes write a thought experiment that really captivates the mind. And I think it is a solid one on that front, at least. So what's your takeaway from the Chinese room? How do you um, I mean, first of all, do you think in answer to the basic question, like, does the Turing test prove that an AI is sentient or something along those lines? What do you think the answer is to that? And like separate from that, you know, what are your concerns with the the um, Chinese room as a as a challenge to that idea? Yeah, good. Uh, let me let me leave the Turing stuff for a little bit. Let me, let me talk okay. about Chinese room a little bit more. So uh, one thing we didn't explicitly mention, but the sort of technical machinery that Searle uses to get to his, or to state his conclusion uh, clearly mm -hmm. is this distinction between syntax and semantics. So the syntax, right? Yes, um, good. That's important. Is, is the formal features of a uh, of a language, the the grammar, the spelling, the order of words, um, the the sort of uh, sort of purely symbolic or purely formal uh, dimensions of, of a language, and this that's the syntax. And then the semantics is supposed to be the meaning of the words. So, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the the syntax of the word cat is C A T, but the semantics of cat are is the fuzzy animals that we live with. And mm -hmm. part of the way of understanding uh, Searle's intuitive point here is that you can never learn about 
real cats in the world from just uh, manipulating the the symbols cat or you know, putting those symbols with other symbols is not going to itself teach you about what ca cats do so uh so still says syntax is never sufficient for semantics and computers only have syntactical processing they never have access to the semantics um and so computers just never understand anything he says he says they're not in, they're not in that line of business yeah it's i mean like you could in theory especially with modern ais right you could have a syntactic machine that could tell you quite a bit about the cat behavior like just like it could you know win at the game of go or something like that but it doesn't have the experience of playing go or the experience of you know having watched a cat you know get loving affection from somebody and then immediately turn around and attack them or something to like un you know really have a vivid sense of um you know understanding these kinds of behaviors right um whether Cyril can hold on to that distinction is a problem so at this point Cyril has some he, he's, he's in lucy's position he has some explaining to do um mm -hmm. he never actually tells us what understanding is or in virtue of what he's able to understand english and what okay. he lacks for understanding chinese mm -hmm. uh, his point here is not to explain what understanding is or how the mind works um his point instead is just to make this intuitive distinction between uh the, the formal and the the meaningful and that computers are only on the formal side um, do you do you think that there is at least a distinction? So, like, one question I wanted to ask you was, right, do you think there really is, like, a genuine difference between when I process language and when, you know, current-level natural language processors process language? Uh, is there a difference? Sure, there's a difference. Um, okay. th they're running on silicon and you're running on biology. Um, they're using <laughs> okay. algorithms. I a salient difference. You've got me there. Okay. Uh, well, so Cyril will say that that's a salient difference. The, the way mm -hmm. that this view ends up playing out, so he doesn't, in his Chinese room paper, give a definition of understanding, but mm -hmm. his uh, more general view, he calls it biological naturalism, and he wants mm -hmm. to say that there's something about biological causal processes that allow for semantic information or semantic content uh, in, in ways that aren't accessible from a purely, uh, purely formal, purely symbolic kind of process that computers do. So computer... Uh, machinery in some sense is not technical enough to to get to the level of semantics yeah and it is defense right he thinks that like the substrate doesn't matter that like it's not like a fact of the you know fact of nature that only biological substrates can provide for sentience or can provide for semantic content it's just that as far as we know in the world that exists right now we've only ever encountered it in biological form and the kinds of symbol manipulators that we're currently able to create in artificial forms don't seem to be able to make the jump to it i guess is the way that it would be put yeah and uh i, I think it's fair to say here that language is really hard um mm -hmm. that uh that language processing is really hard. We, we have special modules in our brain that evolved over millions of years to be able to do this. Um, mm -hmm. And they don't so, work very well. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's, right, that's right. You know, the only, the, like, the difference between us and the AI is often that they're like better at being consistent and the consistency is what makes, what gives them away as not being human. Right. Um, describing the computers as, as better uh, suggests that maybe there's a continuum that maybe as computers improve, they'll mm -hmm. get closer and closer to, uh, the kind of semantic processing that human brains are capable of, but I think Searle wants to cut this off. It's not just that, um, it's not just that uh, sort of computers are on a trajectory towards something like mm -hmm. human minds have, but he, he wants to say there's a there's a sort of categorical difference between the formal right. processing that computers do and and the um, meaningful processing that human brains do. And uh, like, 
yeah, I mean, so like, I want I want to chat about this a little bit because you're skeptical of the semantic syntactic divide. It sounds like, and the way that he uses it, and the way that it doesn't show up in other fields. And I'm curious about that because, you know, on one level, I am compelled by what he's saying, right? Like, I think that there is a kind of level of processing that doesn't involve a kind of understanding and I know I understand he doesn't define it but like you know I think alpha go doesn't understand go in the same way that human beings do in a way that is more important than just one of them is on silicone and one of them is biological um and and then on the other hand like there is the ability to really like understand the meaning behind someone's comments rather than simply know the behavioral proper response. So, so like, you know, I think behavioralism for good reason kind of didn't last as the sole way to view human psychology. And that like a Turing test that is based in behavioralism seems genuinely problematic in this kind of way. So can you maybe help me understand like what the what the issue is with using the semantic syntactic divide as a way to describe this? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about like the the problem with the Turing test writ large. Yeah, good. So um just about the technical distinction between syntax and semantics, th- this is uh a th- there is a distinction here. The terms are you they're jargon in linguistics and computer science. Mm-hmm. Um so, so there is a distinction there. I, I don't want to suggest that the distinction isn't there. What I want to say is that it, that distinction in those, in, especially in linguistics, it doesn't work the way that Searle wants it to work. And linguists are generally not going to endorse the claim that syntax is not sufficient for semantics. Um, okay. Uh, it, it, it's not that it's a continuum from one to the other, but there's sort of different ways of modeling language and uh uh, maybe the conversion is difficult to talk about, but but in natural language processing, AI systems that do natural language processing, um, mm-hmm. it seems very clear that that field um, treats semantics like a form of syntax. Um, natural language processing mm-hmm. systems um, encode the meanings of words. I'm, I'm air quoting right now. The mean, they encode the meanings of words as vectors in a high-dimensional vector space, um, and mm-hmm. they uh, those vectors they have meanings partly in virtue of their relationship to all the other vectors. So for instance, uh, in a natural language processing model, you might be able to uh, put a quantitative value on the difference between a king and a prince. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might also find that the difference between a king and a prince is roughly the same as the difference between a queen and a princess. Mm-hmm. And, and the quantitative uh, comparison there is entirely syntactical, but that syntactical difference is, is, is measuring properties of the semantics. So you, you generate a machine that can do uh, convincing natural language processing by encoding everything in a formal in a formal way. Uh, that's just how computer science works. Um, that mm-hmm. does not prevent you, that does not prevent you from getting these kinds of interesting semantic relations like uh, uh, king king and prince versus queen queen and princess. Okay, so so what you're sort of saying is you can, in a sense, bootstrap a sort of qualitative understanding of entities like king, prince princess, et cetera, from sort of quantitative framings on values of uh, certain understood, more simple concepts? Yeah. I mean, that's how our, that's how our mm. brains do it also. Yeah, uh, that was my next question was, do you think this is exactly how human beings are doing it all the time anyway? Uh, yes, absolutely. This is one of the things I find frustrating about Cyril. It's not just that the argument is bad, but it sort of uh, primes people's intuitions about, about uh, these technical things like language processing in, in the wrong direction. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if people are convinced by Searle's Chinese room argument that there is this strong syntax semantics distinction, then they're sort of 
uh, going to struggle to understand how any of the language processing software works or what exactly the machines are doing um, when they're convincing, uh, producing convincing language. I, I, my, my own view is that to, to some extent, um, that kind of simulation is perfectly adequate for semantics. Like when I ask Google, what is a horse? Um, it doesn't just, I mean, it can tell me about uh, like the average weight and height of horses. It can tell me about different breeds of horses and show, can show me pictures of horses. Um, maybe what I understand horses to be is slightly different from this, but mm -hmm. but uh, Google's understanding of the term horse um, connects it to all of these other properties, uh, pictures and um, other things that it knows about horses. And that's it's, it's a kind of semantic, it's a kind of understanding. Uh, so this is this seems very similar, right? And you were saying earlier that you are kind of a systems theory kind of person. That this is kind of the systems reply, systems objection reply to Cyril, which is the whole system understands the word horse in a way that is functionally equivalent to how human beings understand horse. Right. Is that right? right. Uh, yeah. So uh, Cyril considers a couple of objections in his paper. Um, one mm -hmm. of them is the robot reply and one of them is the systems reply. We, we can start with systems reply. So systems reply, uh, uh, right, the idea is that it's, it's not just Cyril, but it's the whole system that understands. Uh, and Cyril says this is not reasonable that if uh, if he doesn't understand Chinese, then adding a bunch of scraps of paper doesn't mm -hmm. add to the understanding of Chinese. And I, I want to just flat deny that. I think um, the sort of uh, externalist views from like Andy Clark and other 4E uh, embodied theorists, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. the externalism um, is just about how understanding of cognitive processes increases or maybe maybe the semantic power of cognitive processes increased but so so you think that so you're not you're not sympathetic for example when Cyril pushes back and says look if i memorize the rule book right if i ate the room as it were um put it inside of me in that way i would still not have made the jump to understanding chinese in the way that someone who really understands chinese does because when i apply the rules in my head i'm not getting the picture of the beautiful tree or something that somebody has in mind when they hear this actual story in a language that they can they can understand the semantic content of Right. Uh, so this, I think, um, somewhat differently from the systems reply. This is my biggest problem with Searle's Chinese room argument. If, if okay. someone internalizes the whole uh, Chinese room um, and then they're mm -hmm. able to produce, um, I guess, with their mouth or I, with, with writing, but maybe also vocally, it, does, it doesn't really matter. Uh, if they're able to produce behavior that looks like a fluent Chinese speaker, Searle's mm -hmm. um, going to still insist that they don't understand, but there's going to be no behavioral indications for mm -hmm. distinguishing that person from a genuine Chinese speaker. Um, right, I agree. Maybe only internally that they know themselves. But but it seems to me that if you internalize the Chinese rule book, maybe you don't understand Chinese the way a typical Chinese speaker does, but maybe you have some kind of understanding of Chinese just required to do the fast lookup and processing so that mm -hmm. the behavior is, behavior is fluid. Um, and, and now Cyril's in the position of having to distinguish the legitimate from the illegitimate understandings of Chinese. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that I'm not sure that 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 kind of project plays out? Maybe not. And like, I certainly agree with you that from the external side of things, it becomes impossible to distinguish between this person and the natural language, someone who actually understands the Chinese in the more robust kind of way um, that we might have in mind here. And I think that that's something that we'll see happen effectively um, with AI. Uh, I'm still... 
so it, what you were saying there towards the end leans me more towards the objection to Cyril that I'm more sympathetic to, which is what you've effectively done, Cyril, is create a nicer looking magic lookup table objection, which Dennett, for example, talks about in Intentional Systems as being like, you know, it's an objection where you made up something that's so fantastical um, that like if it worked that way, sure, it would confound us, but it's it's not a real challenging hypothetical because it seems like it's so absurd, which is to say the rule book that would be needed to respond convincingly in Chinese would be so vast that it would essentially be this infinite giant lookup table and you need a kind of magic room in order to pass the Turing test in this way. And if you have a magic lookup table, why not just say that the magic lookup table understands Chinese? Right. Yeah. And then you can get into that. But so, I mean, like, I'm, I'm genuinely caught in attention here because I do I do think that Cyril's room oversimplifies things in this kind of way. Um, and it's, you know, like he can be called up on that because he himself, I think, kind of dismisses answers like you know technology could in some ways close this gap um by basically you know saying i'm not gonna you know consider those problems until that technology basically arises um so you know i think he he does earn a little pushback for essentially instantiating miraculous technology and then asking the intentional systems theorists to explain their response to it and yet on the other side I do think that the behavioralist kind of approach to understanding sentience does seem to be missing something important, that, like, the Chinese room does seem to be missing some kind of uh, ability to cognize the external world in a way that uh, we want it to if we're going to consider it to be kind of a full-fledged person. So, I, I don't know. How do you feel like I should try to resolve those tensions at this point? Yeah, so so I said uh, Google understands what horses are earlier because it can produce these pictures, but you might think, well, but, but Google will never have the kind of experiences that I will have of a horse of riding on a horse or petting a horse or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the other Chinese room uh, objection that Cyril considers is the robot reply. And this might be a good place to just talk briefly about the robot reply. So mm-hmm. uh, in the robot reply, um, instead of getting symbolic inputs and symbolic outputs into the Chinese room, uh, Cyril imagines that I have like a video camera and maybe some speakers uh, where I'm getting audio and visual inputs um, and, and maybe the outputs are not just symbolic, but that they're also motor outputs so that the room can sort of move around the world. And then maybe mm-hmm. if the room can get these sort of sensory inputs and these motor outputs, it can move around the world and test things in a kind of uh, scientific way and come to its own sort of understanding. Right? So the, the idea is that if you put the Chinese room in this kind of ro- robot uh, so that it can move around the world in, in these ways, is that enough to give it semantics? And mm-hmm. Cyril's response here is that, no, it's not enough because even if you give, it a, even if you give the room a camera, at some point that... Uh, input is being translated down to pure symbols, and what the computer mm-hmm. is doing is just doing the sim- symbol processing. So all of these fancy peripherals doesn't change any of that. Um, <coughs> so um, I'm not sure. Uh, so so I, I don't like this response a lot. A lot. In some ways, it's the inverse of the sy- or the inverted systems reply. Sure. It seems that the additional things that I know about my cat from uh, apart from just the sort of raw facts that Google knows are these interactions that I have with the cat with my eyes and my hands and the sort of uh, 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 mm-hmm. feedback interactions. And if Cyril won't even allow those feedback interactions as part of the process, um, then it, again, it's, it's just not clear what he means by understanding. Um, so if I, if I program a robot, and there's, there's lots of these kinds of robots online that sort of learn about their environment by manipulation, little hands that can turn things around and see how they... Uh, stand up one way or not, not another, and they can sort of mm-hmm. learn about their or learn about their own bodies um, through this sort of trial and error process. Uh, 
Uh, Mm -hmm. It it seems behaviorally that that's exactly what understanding requires is this kind of trial and behavior. But the way that the processing works in trial behavior um, for Searle, I I suppose Searle would want to say that's not actually doing trial and testing at all because it's it's still only doing the formal symbol manipulation. Mm -hmm. One of the things... But it seems like learning machines would fall into symbol manipulators for the most part. So, yeah... Uh, this is again why I'm skeptical of a strong distinction between the pure symbol manipulation and mm-hmm. the uh, in body processes. Every computer, every natural language AI network that, that uh, processes is also simultaneously a, a machine on a server in a room um, uh, affected by temperature and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, one one response I like to give to Searle is that he's arguing against sort of pure formal symbol manipulators and no such thing actually exists. Every real world computer is not just a pure symbol manipulator. It's also an embodied machine in a world and a context and its processes um, might pertain to those contexts uh, just as much as any of us. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. So, so the, the robot reply, it, it's uh, an embodied reply. What if you give the robot a body and Searle wants to say that even the body is not enough. And this is why I just throw up my hands. I, I don't know what's Searle... Well, so, I mean, I, I think what he wants to, the point he's trying to make is not that, like, the body can't, well, certainly, for example, he says, look, the body will lead us to be more likely to think that it is a sentient entity. It will it will trick us in that kind of way. Um, but it's not, it's not making any jump for, so, so let me, let me put this this way. I think there's another way that we could try to divide this up. Um, what, what strikes me as missing from my laptop that I feel like I have and that I feel like can't be effectively captured by something like the Turing test seems like uh, that there's a person, there's a, there's a, uh, a first person perspective in there for which the information is being assembled and, and presented in some way. And that like, we can, you know, we're setting aside all of the caveats I want to make about psychology and, you know, how, how fractured my perspective really is and all these kinds of things. There is still someone having experiences on the inside. And I'm, I'm just not convinced. Like, like what it's, what he seems to be saying is missing to me is you can have the formal processing of a semantic system of a, of a syntactic system excuse me right you can have the formal processing of a symbol manipulator without anyone being there to observe the shifting around of those symbols and it's the observing of the shifting them around that you know maybe he does he does a bad job because he conflates that with semantic content and like you're right to say that like we can mimic any level of semantic content with syntactic content but it still seems like there is an important distinction of an entity you know, having the first person given this experience of this these subjective sensations. So I'm curious, do you do you think that that is still something that is important, and that like we should preserve that concern even while jettisoning um, his particular way of trying to formulate the problem? Yeah, good. So uh, it, it might be helpful to bring in another distinction that Searle raises in other papers: the distinction between uh, derived and original intentionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, Searle is really looking for some some distinction uh, t- to draw between the computers and the machines, and uh, he wants it to be. I think a lot of people share your intuition that there's something missing from uh, Turing's discussion, something missing from computers, um, mm-hmm. and uh, some mysterious something that we can't quite put our finger on that uh, 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 it, it explains that. Um, one of the ways that Searles draws this distinction in other papers is by the derived and original intentionality distinction. Mm-hmm. So he thinks that that uh, 
there are uh, some things have derived into digital or derived meaning. Um, the the symbols cat mean cat because of uh, language. Um, like like we've mm-hmm. we've assigned we've assigned that symbol string the meaning cat. Um, other languages assign different symbol strings the meaning cat, and that's sort of all cultural and contingent. And we can uh, we can we can assign symbols meanings uh, sort of however we want in, in language. But Stroll also thinks, so this is derived intentionality. It's derived from these conventions and practices. Um, mm-hmm. But Stroll also thinks that there's something like original intentionality that explains how my brain can have uh, meaningful operations. And uh, Searle wants to insist that uh, there's something intrinsically original about my mental states that is not merely derived from the outside. Hmm. And th- this, this, this is bringing us towards uh, Lovelace's objection. Um, right. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, I, just to, I just want to mention that doesn't strike me as the way that I would go with trying to lay out what seems to be missing here. But I, I think, you know, I get what you're saying that like that could be one way to try to capture it. But so why don't you it, go ahead and um, yeah, discuss the, Lovelace's objection. Go ahead. Well, the, the way that you were trying to uh, capture it was uh, by appeal to something about the first person perspective or the subjective experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, th- that is one way. Uh, and I want to talk about that with autonomy. But th- that's definitely not what Searle's doing. So Searle's argument doesn't depend on. Uh, mm-hmm. A lack of experience. He's he's focused on understanding as this sort of linguistic item. Right. Uh, the other thing that Searle's not doing is appealing to the programmers. Um, it's not simply because the machine was programmed that it lacks semantics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and but th- but this is Lovelace's objection. Uh, Lovelace's objection to Turing's test um, is that uh, the machines can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they cannot do anything original on their own. They can only do what we know how to order to perform. So uh, Lovelace's objection is not that machines can't do certain things. Searle thinks machines can't do certain things. Searle, or at least computers, cannot understand. There's some kind of activity or process that's off limits to the machine, to the computer. Um, to the symbol manipulators, at least. To the symbol right. manipulator, right. to, to the, the formal, formal computer. Right. Uh, Lovelace doesn't have this kind of view. Lovelace is not saying that there's something machines cannot do. Lovelace admits that the machines can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. So mm-hmm. the fundamental limit from Lovelace's perspective is not a limit on machines or computers. It's a limit on our understanding of the machine or our ability to program the machine. In mm-hmm. other words, we're, we're the limitation on computers. Right. Um, I, I think this is uh, something that a lot of people... Uh, are also sympathetic with that what's different about the machine is not something about its internal operations, but it's something about its relationship to us. Uh, when, when you have a thought, um, I, I uh, generally consider that your own thoughts coming from you. But when a computer says something to me, I generally think well, that was programmed by someone else and that the computer is only sort of representing someone else's will. So, so this is uh, on Searle's view, computers sort of only have derived intentionality. Any apparent meaning in the computer's behavior is uh, entirely derived from from somewhere else, from something else, from the social conventions, from the programmer. Um, but only yeah. humans have these original original uh-huh. ideas. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I I think I don't worry about that as much because I come from a very deterministic, no free will kind of place where I think like us as machines also can't do anything beyond what we were programmed to do. The programmers just much more sophisticated. Um, and so like, to me, the answer to lay Lovelace's objection is just, 
once you have sufficiently advanced learning machines, right, that like Nick Bostrom style can bootstrap their way up to super intelligence levels, then they will in practice be able to do all sorts of things that we could have never programmed them to do. And so in practice, you solve that that like limitation of programmer problem. And I don't, I guess I'm not then, you know, concerned in principle by like the fact that they got there by a process that originally involved um, indirect intention in the way that, that you're describing. What do you think about that pushback for the Lovelace objection? Um, I, I think that's the right response. This is Turing's response. Turing's response mm-hmm. to Lovelace's objection is to build learning machines. If the machines learn, then they outstrip their original programming. Um, they learn from what they've experienced in the world. And it's, um, it's just amazing that he gets there in 1950. I just like, yeah. when I teach this, I just, I, I want to highlight that in this Turing book, you know, he just like basically is like, you know, what about if we just had learning machines and like basically, you know, predicts the next you know, uh, century of technology. Um, right. Uh, so I, I, I like um, Turing's response uh, of building learning machines. And you might think that if a machine, so, but, but how does this play with uh, uh, Searle's uh, derived and original intentionality? I think, mm-hmm. and this is a lot of students' response to Turing on Lovelace also, is that, well, we, we program them to learn. So even if they're learning, they're learning because of how we programmed, and so they still have this kind of uh, relationship to their human designers. Um, I, I think a lot of this discussion is sort of framed on this uh, uh, designer, designed, or, or uh, sort of mm-hmm. teacher-student, or um, uh, uh, a dynamic, God and, and hu- humans. Right. The, the, the model is that we, we programmed and we're sort of the God of the machines, and so they owe some allegiance and uh, uh, responsibility. We have some responsibility to them, and they have owe, owe us some uh, credit for, for what they do. Yeah. Turing um, actually takes into account the God objection and is not very favorable towards it for some reason. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, uh, but uh, let, let, me, let me go back to Lovelace's objection. So, so yeah. I, I, I like Turing's response, and I like... Uh, uh, the idea of, of building learning machines. But um, one thing to say about Lovelace's objection is that sh- she's not objecting to machines doing particular things like, like Searle is. Uh, she can do, they can do anything that uh, we know how to order them to perform. Um, mm-hmm. um, so the way I, the way that I describe this in my, in my dissertation is that um, Lovelace is not really objecting to artificial intelligence in the sense that there's some things that machines cannot do. What she's mm-hmm. objecting to is artificial autonomy, that machines are not sufficiently independent of humans, that they're uh, that, that their behavior is dependent and so attributable to h- human behavior in, in mm-hmm. a particular way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so if, if Turing's response is to build learning machines, um, part of the way that I read Turing here is that uh, what Turing thinks learning is about is about developing this kind of autonomy, this kind of independence, that mm-hmm. what learning gives you is not access to semantics or it's not that learning gives you uh, a conscious mind or a perspective a subjective perspective, what learning gives you is uh, some kind of autonomy. So uh, when I'm teaching students, imagine I'm teaching students uh, a long division problem, or imagine I'm teaching a student long division, how to do long division for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time we work through the problem, um, I'm mostly going to be doing most of the work. Uh, I'm saying what happens at each step, and the student uh, hopefully follows along. But if we keep doing this over and over with lots of different problems, eventually the student learns, and I know the student has learned when they can do the problem themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, so it's that autonomous performance that mm-hmm. um, is the indicator that learning has been achieved, that, that, that it's no longer just following what I do, but they can do it on their own. And notice in this case that it's not that the student has come up with a new algorithm for long division. 
uh, the student is doing exactly what I taught them to do, the following the exact algorithm. Um, and so I can anticipate exactly what the right. student's going to do at every second uh, mm -hmm. of, of their uh, problem. Uh, nevertheless, I, even though I know exactly what the student's doing, I still consider them autonomously because they did it without my help in some sense. Um, or, or at least I was only helping in the design process. And then I sort of let them free in the world and they can do it on their own. Mm -hmm. and, and like, I'm sympathetic to that kind of, so, so this maybe gets into an ambiguity that comes up in the, in the um, Turing paper, you know, Turing starts by asking the question, can machines think? Right. And he says, well, we got to figure out what both those words mean. And by the machine, we're going to mean the universal Turing machine. And by think, like, he has trouble on that because, again, he doesn't want it to be this internal feature that I've been talking about. Um, and so thinking gets reduced to the ability to engage in exactly what you're saying, the kind of autonomous behavioral processes in the right ways, in the right moments, you know, in reaction to the right stimulus. Um, and I certainly, you know, like, I think he's been proven perfectly correct in the sense that we can make AIs that are very good at thinking on those in those kinds of ways. Like, it's harder to do with, um, you know, more ambiguous kinds of stimulus like language, but it is something that, like, there's no, there's no reason to doubt that we will not continue to make steady progress on a lot of those fronts. Um, but it still seems like, there is something lacking and it's maybe 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 you're right that like you know Cyril's way of putting it in terms of intentionality or in terms of the understanding is not the right way to put it but it does seem to me that I worry that with sentience, we still don't have a test for it. The Turing test is not a test for sentience. Um, and I'm curious if you think that we will ever genuinely have like a test, you know, like, like we will create learning AIs that are advanced enough that they act autonomous. Will we ever be able to know if they are experiencing things or just kind of moving symbols around in a way that expresses the external behavior of experiencing things? Yeah, good. So um, here also, I really like Turing's response. Um, mm -hmm. Turing is going to, uh, he's going to first say that we can't do this kind of thing for other people. I, I can't really know what your emotional state is like or what's really going on in your head. Um, so it, it seems uh, like a double standard to hold the machines uh, to, to this. Uh, 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 um, it, it seems like a double standard to hold machines. Uh, my understanding of Turing is that uh, th there are these behaviorist sort of scientific reasons that he likes the Turing test, but his big motivation for proposing the Turing test is an ethical uh, motivation. It's uh, what, what he calls fair play for machines. Mm -hmm. um, Turing has the uh, idea that people are prejudiced against machines and that it really doesn't matter what they do. Uh, we're going to decide that they're not intelligent because simply because they're machines, simply because they're computers. I'm sympathetic to him on all those fronts. Uh-huh. So part of the structure of the Turing test is to uh, sort of filter out these human prejudices, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's all uh, this sort of typed text that you don't know it's a, if it's a person. Uh, and then uh, presumably this is supposed to give us our, our raw sort of feedback to the, to the interaction itself. Um, and, and that's supposed to give some indication of whether the, uh, the machine thinks. I don't think Turing is really interested in the question whether the machine thinks. I, what I think he's interested in is these prejudices that we have against machines. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, trying to uh, uh, judge the machine fairly. So the Turing test is supposed to be a fair test in the sense that um, we use the same methods to judge the intelligence of other humans. Right? Uh, if I want to know if you're intelligent, I ask you questions, I see what, how, you, how good your answers are. Um, and yeah. so, so what Turing's really saying is just apply this same method to evaluating the 
intelligence of the machines? Yeah, no, I actually think that's a really good point, and I think it is worth noting that, especially probably given his own personal experiences, right, he's very familiar with the ways that humans will oppress entities that are different than them. Um, and so, you know, he does talk in the paper about how um, there are these kinds of cognitive biases against seeing AIs as potentially being entities that could be embodied souls or things like that. Um, so, you know, I'm sympathetic there, but at the same time, I think it's a bit hand-wavy to say we are in the exact same relation with regard to the artificial entity as we are with regard to biological entities onto which we make this assertion. Because, you know, we can reasonably say, and this gets, this brings in like Nagel's what it's like to be a bat kind of stuff, right? We can reasonably say, I know that I'm sentient. I think. I think I can make a good case on that one, right? And I can thereby reasonably infer that you, another human being who's engaging with me like a sentient human being, is very likely to be sentient and not likely to be a philosophical zombie. And that by extension, I can infer that apes and hopefully, you know, probably bats and things can also be, we, we can reasonably infer that they, because they evolved along similar pathways as we did, evolved the same sorts of internal worlds of some, some version of an internal world of experience to accommodate the informational resources that they were being provided. Um, and then, and, and then on the flip side, right, the AIs did not follow any of those patterns of evolution. They did not face the same kind of constraints that we did. They're not moving along the same systems that we are and their solutions are very different than ours as a result in a lot of situations and not in a bad way, but in a different way. And that it thereby seems to me to say, reasonable to say, there is a fair distinction between my assessment of you and my assessment of um, an entity that I know to have arisen in a very different evolutionary path. Um, now, does that mean that we can never infer that they are sentient? No, but I do think it is at least, you know, what do you think about that sort of pushback as a salient distinction when assessing these entities? Yeah, I, I, maybe one way to restate your point is just that behaviorism is wrong. Um, if mm-hmm. we're looking at evolutionary history, that's that's not just behavior. That's I'm something. always happy with that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think functionalism is just the the, the modern re- reworking of uh, behaviorism. So, so I, th- I think in some ways behaviorists have the right idea. They just have to go deeper. But uh, and maybe these sort of evolutionary stories that you're telling are, are a way of going a little bit deeper. But but I think it's still a functionalist externalist um, sort of perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in consciousness. Uh, I, I don't know that there's uh, a lot of merit to the internal first-person perspective. So you're you're a full-on I, illusionist then? Yeah, maybe, uh, a limitivist. Maybe I like a little bit better than illusionist. Um, okay. I, I I think a lot of our ways of framing this are influenced by tradition, sort of religious tradition, especially Syrian religious tradition, especially. Uh, and that, not the direct think, phenomenal experience that I'm having right now. That seems to me like I'm, I'm an atheist. I really I couldn't possibly care less about the mystique on on the side of this. Like it's just I'm having this experience in this moment right now. It could all be like you know a bucket of lies by a demon or something. But the fact that I'm having the experience seems to me totally um, uh, unavoidably true. And, and like, are you are you denying that part of it, or are you denying sort of like a weaker part of like the the nature of qualia or something yeah i, I mean uh i 
this is a big other discussion that we probably no, I know this is much. something to spiral um, off into with like five <laughs> minutes left. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, uh, but I, I guess the, the, I wasn't suggesting that you might have religious sympathies here, but mm-hmm. uh, rather I, I was suggesting that um, the this idea of taking first person experience as absolute or a grounding of knowledge is sort of central to this, uh, especially sort of uh, uh, revolutionary uh, or uh, revelation mm-hmm. based. They, uh, they certainly religious. do it badly. I'll give you credit. Yeah. I'll, give you, I'll agree with you on that one. So I, so I just want to, I just, I just don't like any of that stuff. I, I want to say that my, my, my phone is sentient. It has sensors. Sentience is just integrating sensors into your behavior, uh, sensations into your behavior. My, my phone has all sorts of sensors. My Does phone, your phone have rights then? I mean, like, uh, is it a member of the moral community if it's sentient? Yeah, so, so uh, it, it is a member of the moral community, but I want to say, but not in virtue of its sentience. I think, I think sentience is, is a low bar, sort of a, a trivial. Um, all, again, all machines are embedded in the world. They're reactive to the things around them, even if they don't have uh-huh. explicit sensors. Um, so, so I, I want to give the moral analysis at the at the network level, at the level of um, um, interdependent processes, and uh, this is very different from the sort of biological centered uh, view. That, you know, from my own experience to my kind to um, sort of variations of my kind, uh, and, and moving out from this centered way. Um, I, I I want to take a completely different tack. Um, so I, I don't want to focus sentience. What I want to focus is autonomy and a- agency and autonomy. Okay. I think I think mm-hmm. all machines are agents. Um, to be a machine, to be a machine is to be an agent. Uh, mm-hmm. Agents do things. Agents do things. Uh, uh, agents do things in response to their environment. Agency fact, is an externally observ- observable, behaviorally quantifiable kind of thing, is what you're saying, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so everything's uh, everything's a machine. All machines are agents. Um, but uh, maybe there's a special level of agency which we can call autonomy. Uh, that's um, uh, uh, has some special status with respect to uh, moral community. So, but but I don't think this is a very high. I also don't think this is a very high bar to meet. So, my favorite example of an autonomous robot is uh, Hitchbot. Um, Hitchbot. I don't know if you know Hitchbot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, for for this, folks uh, who aren't familiar, do you want to share? Yeah, it, it's this little bucket robot. Um, in 2014 and 2015, uh, hitchhiked across the United States. It was able to get across the United States, and uh, sorry, it didn't get across the United States. It was able to get across Canada and the Netherlands and Germany. I mean, 2014, 2015, just by sticking its uh, thumb out on the highway, it had a Twitter feed so people would pick it up. Um, it made it across the North America before any self-driving car made it across America by itself. So um, <laughs> more autonomous than self-driving cars. Technically achieved the same goal more effectively. I'll give you that. That's right. Um, it's uh, It can move on its own. Uh, it doesn't have any moving parts. The, the only electronic parts are its uh, uh, batteries and its iPhone that has a Twitter and an Instagram connection. Um, but but otherwise, it's just an inert bucket. Um, and uh, nevertheless, it made it across the country. And I want to say that this is an autonomous trip. Um, no no single person, um, no individual planned out the whole route and uh, designed exactly what it would do. Um, in some sense, Hitchbot did it itself. Uh, part of its technique for doing itself is being cute enough to attract a following of uh, friends and helpers to, to move it along. But I want to say this is this is what all of our autonomy consists in. Uh, not just that we're cute enough, but but that we mm-hmm. have these systems of interdependent relationships all around us that allow us to do what, what we're doing. Right. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, being autonomous is being able to do certain kinds of work on your own. Scare quotes again on your own. Um, and we're on your own here is defined in social terms. So, mm-hmm. uh, my student that I'm teaching long division, um, the doing it on their own doesn't include all the stuff that I taught the student. Um, it only includes what they're doing on the test. So, right. what, what counts right. as doing it on their own is sort of socially prescribed. 
Uh, and I want to say the same thing for, for the robots. Uh, we can treat Hitchbot as if it's doing something on its own. It has very low capacities. It's nothing at all uh-huh. like a human. I'm not, I'm not saying that it has that it's conscious or that it has cognitive states like a human at all. It's a, bu- it's a bucket and an iPhone. But nevertheless, as a social agent, it has an autonomous existence uh, where we can, rec- we can name it. Um, we feel sad when it, when it gets destroyed. Uh, this social presence distinguishes Hitchbot from every other bucket and iPhone um, uh-huh. around because those I'm, things don't have a community of support. I, I'm just thinking about how mad it would make Immanuel Kant to hear you describing the Hitchbot as autonomous and a member of the moral community as a result. Like, And it makes me happy because he's a fucking racist, so like, <laughs> I'm glad that he's upset about it from his grave, and I hope he's still undead, happy, unhappy about it. But like... I mean, so do you have like moral judge and, and like we're running out of time here, but I have so many questions. You've just opened <laughs> so many cans of Pandora's boxes for me here. Um, do you think that people who I, I, maybe it wasn't Hitchbot, but at least one of these bots was like accosted at, at one point? Um, yeah. Do you it, think it that individuals Hitchbot was destroyed in, in Philadelphia, didn't make it across uh, the United right. States? Right. So when Hitchbot is destroyed in, in Philadelphia, has someone committed an immoral act against a member of the moral community? Should they be punished commensurate with the destruction of an autonomous agent in that scenario? Yeah, I think it's different from just uh, pure vandalism. Uh, this is actually. Uh, a fairly well-developed discussion in uh, AI ethics or uh, in ro- robotics in general is that mm-hmm. there's a distinction between uh, vandalism and bullying, um, and there's a, a big literature on bullying robots. So vandalism is just destruction of property, but bullying uh, has this uh, again this, this social connotation. Bullying is about power dynamics. It's about I should, asserting I should power laugh over. At this. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, all I on, can think on, of are Boston Dynamics videos. You're talking, and all I can think of them is just kicking the, the Boston Dynamics dogs and how much we're going to deserve it when they kill us all. Yeah, so I, I, I uh, was the one who made the video every time Boston Dynamics abused a robot where I, I, co- I compiled all the uh, Oh, my God, Boston that Dynamics. was a great video. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's got like 4 million views. It got pretty popular. And I like to believe, I don't know this for, for a fact, but I like to believe it had some impact in Boston Dynamics' decision to no longer show videos of them pushing and shoving robots. It's the official Which position. they're not still doing it. You've just driven them underground. Well, I mean, obviously they're doing it in their, uh, in, in their warehouses where they're building the robots. It's, it's part of the testing. <laughs> And, and uh, this is why I think uh, it, it's not bad that Boston Dynamics is shoving and pushing their robots for the purposes of the testing. That's how you build better robots. Um, what's, what's bad is Boston Dynamics showing us all on YouTube that this is what you do with robots. You shove and push them. Right? Uh, the, the problem is not the treatment of the individual robot. It's the sort of cultural attitudes that we're developing about robots. That they're, you know, the, the premier robot developer is demonstrating to us the appropriate treatment of these robots. And it, mm-hmm. it requires shoving them around with hockey sticks and so on. So, I just want you to know I laugh because I agree with you. Some people, I think, misunderstand my laughter as being laughter of derision, but I'm laughing because I think it's hilarious and I totally agree with what you're saying. <laughs> it's my, my agreement laughter. So um, I'm fully on board with, with all of this. And I, I, I desperately want to get you back on to talk about some of this some more, um, but I realize we're running real short on time. Is there anything you finally, any final comments that we left out that you wanted to get in on the um, the Turing AI um, are you are you at least still somewhat sympathetic to my concern that there's a inner being to some extent that is is we we can't prove exists or doesn't exist in these entities um, and that, that that presents at least something of a problem that we're going to be running into here soon. I'm I'm very not sympathetic to that. In fact, okay. I, I want to try to convince you that that's a form of essentialism. That's essentially a, a religious doctrine that you should abandon post haste. Okay, I think we're, I think <laughs> we don't have the time for we, it. But we, I yeah, think no, we, we have that conversation later. This is a lot of fun. Thank you very much. 
No, absolutely. And of course, I, you have to stick around for the enlightening round. Oh, so yeah, you're, yeah, not, yeah. you're not out of the woods yet. I now have to, uh, for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give our, our wonderful guest here a series of questions, uh, a, series of, a series of things. And you're going to tell me, are those things real or not real? Those are your only options. You cannot hedge. Um, are you ready? Yeah, sure. Okay. Do you think that anything is real? Y- uh, yes. Okay. So let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Uh, yes. Are yes. colors real? Yes. Is phenomenal consciousness real? No. Free will? No. Selves or persons? Um, no. Genders? Are genders real? I'm not allowed to hedge. Nope. <laughs> um... No. Okay. Races? No. Species? No. Morality? Uh, is it real? Um, no, I guess not. I think I've, <laughs> rights. I've, I've changed my mind in the course of this. Um, are rights okay. real? No. Uh-huh. Knowledge? No. Gods? No. Okay. Society? No. Money? Um, uh, no. I, I, I think I want to. I think I want to change my answers that are yes at the beginning to no. Also, have you succumbed to nihilism? Yeah, uh, I've succumbed to nihilism in the process of this. Numbers? No. Fictional characters? No. Holes I'm, like a hole in the ground? I'm just trying to be consistent now. No. No <laughs> chairs. No. Sandwiches. No. Science. No. <laughs> Natural laws. No. Beauty. No. Causality. Uh, no. And finally, time. Does time exist? Yes. Is time real? Y- yes. Oh, one at the end. We pulled it out. Yeah. I was wondering if we if we'd colla- if you were going to have to reverse your position that anything was real. <laughs> I want to retract my external world thing though. This external world is not real. Time is real. Okay, so the okay. only thing you think is real is time. <laughs> yeah, space time. Okay, just time. <laughs> space time, okay, so space and time. All right, fair enough. Well answered, how do you feel? I feel good. I want to yeah. talk to you about AI ethics at some point in the future. Yeah, no, we clearly need to talk some more, um, so I'm happy to have you back on at some point. Um, and in the meantime, Daniel, do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Yeah, uh, it rips out on Twitter. I'm there all the time. Okay. <laughs> pretty much it okay great well thank you so much this has been a lot of fun yeah thanks as always i'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible i'd like to thank some new patrons and some returning patrons thanks to osmium lost remote control theo fweth full name stephen mckendry and we're still getting paid so making sure you are too that's a really touching sentiment. Uh, thanks also to Jonathan Yance Jones for increasing his pledge. Um, and as always, I must thank our top patrons at the $20 tier level. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existens makes my pussy throb. Now everyone knows about Camp Quest. Check out blacknonbelievers.com. Strong suggestion. Uh, Chad T. Brenda Goodman and Jesse Urbinowitz. And at our top tier 
evil cult leader levels. We've got our longtime friend Dave Maslich, and our mystery patron has revealed himself to be the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon. So I imagine he's riddled with phlebitis, and we're happy to have him here. Uh, thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast app you use, though especially iTunes helps a lot. Uh, follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content, which I promise is returning now that I've finished moving. Um, and most importantly, in these trying times especially, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. Mm-hmm.